Welcome to the New Stewards Podcast, where we speak to believers all around the world, find out what they are doing to combat the changing climate and how their faith drives them in their work. My name is Ilyas, and I'm on a mission to ensure Muslims become global leaders in addressing climate change. I believe we were put on this planet as stewards and trustees, or in Arabic, khalifas. In this podcast series, I hope to discover what it means to be a steward on earth, so we inspire and enable millions of Muslim sustainability leaders. Today, my guest is Huda. She's an environmentalist and urban planner who has been working on Arab cities for over 15 years. In her work, Huda tries to make sure cities are people and planet focused. This means that cities should be healthy, resilient and sustainable. Huda holds master degrees in analytical chemistry and international urban planning. She's currently working in Abu Dhabi as advisor for the Department of Municipalities and Transport. She's also known, and perhaps better known, as the Green Urbanista. For many years, she has been sharing her thoughts and challenges on building better cities and spaces on her blogs and social media. Assalamu alaikum, Mahuda. It's really great to have you here on the podcast. Wa alaikum assalam Thank you. Pleasure is mine. Great. I'm very curious. How did you get started within sustainability and how did that lead up to you calling yourself the green urbanista? So the starting in sustainability was a bit of a coincidence. So I'm interested in the environment and when I did my degree in chemistry, I focused on environmental chemistry and chemistry to answer environmental questions around atmospheric pollution, etc. Something that had an impact on people. But I still was more, my focus was on the science mostly, rather than the sustainable development field. But when I started working in Dubai, I saw a niche. I started working in the built environment as an environmental specialist. And I could see that there was a need for strategic, proactive thinking around living a better way when it comes to environmental and social impact. And that's where my involvement came about. In terms of the green urbanista, my the two focus areas for me for most of my career have been sustainability and cities or urban planning. And so green is sustainability and urban is urban planning. And I, I came up with the name and the, the poll on LinkedIn. I had a few other options and there was an overwhelming response that the green urbanista was the name to go for. So the people chose it, I guess. I see. Okay. So you were democratic from the start. What challenges are there for you in, because you, you said you see a need for strategic and proactive thinking about environment and sustainable impact. What are those challenges that you're, that you've been trying to work on all those years? And what, where are those? So it's evolved. When I first started working in Dubai in 2007 in the built environment and in the field of sustainability. And so that's, things have changed a lot since then. At that point, the word sustainability wasn't even used really. A project wanted to be environmentally responsible, then, you know, doing an environmental impact assessment was, was what they did and maybe thought about getting some sort of a rating or, but even that really was focused on environmental impact assessment, which is very, almost a regulatory minimum, but people were actually looking at it as an achievement. And so there was no, from my, what I saw, there was no real vision or top-down creativity in terms of how do we shape this project that from the beginning it promotes environmental efficiency, environmental protection, social health, social capital, well-being, etc. So that it's not something that we change at the end. It's something that's built in from the beginning and it's part of the DNA of the project. 
and I think that's there's been a shift. So that's what what was what could have been what was a dream or what was something that was hardly t- spoken about. There are now a few projects that are at least thinking in that way. A few projects that have implemented some kind of thinking. It's it's maybe an idealistic vision, and so even having just one or two projects that have gone the distance is a big achievement. But we're definitely, there's a lot more in terms of guidance, regulation, requirements, professional development in the industry, skill. Compared to 15 years ago, we're actually, you know, decades ahead now. Could you give an example of how taking those different factors into account from the beginning changes the outcome of the project? Because I understand that what you're saying is if you plan something with the the ambition, the vision to make something that is sustainable, that has impact from the beginning. And it's better to take those into account from the beginning. How does that change the project? Sure. So if we take a simple example to try and make the point clear, if you're looking at a single building before kind of looking at the neighborhood or a cityscape, sustainability isn't part of the initial thinking. The design will be fixed, the orientation will be fixed, the facade material will be fixed, and all of that will be decided. And then somebody will come along and say, but, but this needs to be sustainable. And then they may add a bike crack or a PV panel at the top. Whereas if the building was designed with sustainability in mind, one, ideally, it may even change the location of the building because you may pick a plot that's a brownfield as opposed to a greenfield, or you may decide that actually I don't need a new building, I'll repurpose an existing building. But even if you chose to build a new building, the decisions around the shape of the building, its orientation, materials used, there's so much more opportunity to make a positive impact and to reduce negative impact when you're making those decisions. After some key parameters are set, like the orientation and the location, it becomes difficult to make a significant impact, not just difficult technically, but also costly, because you've started off on the wrong foot. And so you're almost correcting your own mistakes as opposed to making the most of opportunities. Okay. Oh, that's a very clear example. Yeah. So the the impact could be huge depending on how you look at the project. Correct. And then you can imagine if you scale that then to a neighborhood or a major infrastructure project or a city, that the impact then scales and scales. And it becomes rather than just on the environment, the bigger spatial area you look at, the, the more social impact there as well. Mm. Okay. So the type of transport, are we? Are you actually making it easier for people to walk and cycle by where you place the buildings and the density and the networks? Or are you just planning your city for cars and then putting a cycle rack, hoping that pe- a cycle lane, hoping that people will use the cycle lane? So who are you planning the city for? Yeah. As opposed to which boxes are you ticking? Which, yes. Okay. And that, that also then underlines why just doing an environmental impact assessment is not sufficient in many of those cases. If you're truly building for sustainability in that the broad sense that you're describing it. Exactly. Okay. exactly. I can imagine that that your work over the last 15 years has been very challenging because you've been you work in an area where the development has been enormous and quite uh, quick, right? The Middle East and especially mm-hmm. the Dubai and Abu Dhabi where you've been working has gone from not to just mega cities over the last couple of years, a couple of decades, I should say. How have your experiences been? Because I, I think that is a challenge that we all have, right? We want to make those big processes that we're working on and that we see flying by our eyes, before our eyes, a little bit greener, but they are quite speedy. It's a very open question, but I guess you understand yeah. where I'm trying to go with it. Yes, there's definitely a challenge. But I would also say it's very exciting because a lot is happening in a new area, in a place where 
there is actually a room to influence. There is, in some cases, top-down political will to do something different for various reasons. So it's uh, there is an opportunity to, to make change. You can work on a project and actually see it's built as opposed to work on a project and then it gets built 50 years later or never gets built. There, there are not just new buildings, but new infrastructure, new cities planned, as you're saying. It's a transient population. It's also a very international pool of residents and professionals. There aren't established codes and guidelines that have been there for centuries or decades. It's, okay, we need to do this now. How do we do it? How can we collaborate with all the minds in the room and use the best of the international experience and the depth of local knowledge to develop a solution that works for us? It doesn't have to be, you know, we're not necessarily using anybody else's blueprint. It may not work anywhere else, but if it works here, that's fine. That's that all That's all that we need. So the creativity is encouraged. And so it's, a, yes, the, there are the challenges, but then there are also the exciting bits and the unique bits about this part of the world. Yeah. And is there room for, for your vision on creating healthy and sustainable cities within that creativity? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm still here. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and and generally, there are always interesting discussions going on, and people wanting to talk about this and wanting to move it forward. And to me, what inspires me personally is is seeing light bulb moments on people's faces. So, in a discussion, I can either break down a complex topic or get somebody to see something in a different angle. Even if they, don't, it's not about whether they agree or disagree, but just changing their mental map or changing their mindset or having them see things slightly differently. Mm. To me, that's where I get my profession fulfillment. Mm. And so I, there's enough instances of that that I'm I'm still here and I'm still going. Fair enough. And I guess the the potential for impact is quite large, right? If there is no uh, policy or set guidelines that you always have to conform to, there is a, a lot of room to make a small shift that could have a lot of impact down the line. Yes, I mean, there obviously there are regulatory frameworks and policy frameworks, but they're, I'd say, maybe more flexible, less less rigorous because they're kind of newer and put together quicker. Hmm. So there, there is that. The, generally, the attitude is one of promoting creativity and innovation, and let's come up with something practical that works. Hmm. That, that's refreshing, I guess, in, 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 you know, in a lot of ways. I'm very interested on your view on sustainability, or perhaps a more, well, perhaps just your view on sustainability, because here in, in the West and here in the Netherlands where I live, sustainability and green are very much the same. But I think that that, that makes less sense or in, in your context, right, in a different climate. How does that translate into your work and what's your view on that? Yes, so I, I do my, call myself the green urbanist. The reference to green is to green as a reference to sustainability broadly, not necessarily just the color green. Mm -hmm. But yes, over the past, I mean, it's been a theme that I've talked about and thought about for a while, but in more depth in the past few years. So, you know, it's not a surprise that the Gulf region or many parts of the Middle East has a, in an arid climate with water is a very scarce resource and so anytime we talk about trees or irrigation we're all in the big push is to reduce water consumption water efficiency so the discussions around what does you know how much how sustainable is the color green you know how green is green in the desert mm -hmm. that's always been part of my role mm. i think more recently it's looking into so you know, what does that actually mean beyond just the water efficiency targets? And with the bigger push on things like well-being and air quality and livability, and it's not just about the fancy resort that wants to have a lot of trees. It's about cities thinking about how do we plan 
better, healthier spaces for our people? And the obvious answer in people's minds many times is, oh, plant trees. Mm. But then, so then the question is, okay, is that really the is that really always the answer? Is it always the best answer anywhere you are? And that applies anywhere. But then add on top of that the layer of the desert and the arid climate. And so are we talking about nature or are we talking about trees? Mm. And I think as soon as you, and and people will try and say from different angles, well, you know, everything from, well, but the Quran talks about the color green and trees and that this is paradise and clearly this is good. To, but you know, but there are studies that say if you look at something that's green, then your health is better, etc. Or that you know, trees and air pollution are, and people quote all sorts of studies. But the, I think what's, um, and I was genuinely curious: mm. like, is this the best way? Is this the answer? What's the what's what is the evidence? And this is where kind of my scientific mind and this my scientific background kicks in. And from and it's an ongoing journey. I don't think I have a final conclusive answer. But from what I've read and found so far, really the benefits that we associate with biophilic cities, for example, so cities in nature and cities that work well with nature, or biophilia in general as a concept, which is nature loving. By definition, biophilia is nature loving. It's not green loving. A lot of the positive mental well-being impacts of being next to trees or close to trees is actually about being close to nature. You can get similar impacts with other forms of nature. It's not limited to mm -hmm. trees. Things like air pollution, trees actually can have positive or negative impacts on air pollution, depending on the type of tree, the context, the geometry, the layout, etc., etc. So these are not hard facts. And I'm not, you know, I'm not against trees. So sure this is the important point to make. You know, I am a chartered environmentalist, believe it or not. And I, you know, I love trees. But it, really, it's about just like we would have well thought through strategy for implementing, I don't know, active travel or looking at any other challenge in the mental environment. Let's approach nature and open space with the same rigor. Understand what are, what's the vision? What are our objectives? What are we trying to achieve? And then look at all the different options for achieving that in the context, given the opportunities and the constraints of that particular context. And then I'm sure trees will be part of the answer, but in terms of where and how and what type and what are the other assets that we can leverage, you know, whether it's uh, the wadis, the desert, the oceans, the shores, the, uh, uh, you know, the sunshine. There's so much nature in our part of the world and, you know, valuing it, well, understanding it, valuing it. And that all takes research and knowledge that is uh, locally based mm. and context driven, yeah. which is a big gap at the yeah. moment. And uh, yeah, I can imagine that uh, the perhaps more Western narrative on sustainability, that is very much to to large extent, uh, one, one of the biggest carbon capture strategies there currently is major tree planting. So that in, in our, in, in my work, trees are very central to the sustainability agenda. And it's, I guess it's weird to talk about trees for so long, but it does shape the sustainability narrative a lot to, to have green trees and as part of what it means to build back better or to rebuild. What, how does that influence the narrative in your region of the world and in your work? Because it's less obvious or perhaps it, it is, you need more of that more local research that is being done. Correct. And I think, well, climate change is a slightly different topic because then we're talking about the global challenge and, you know, whether you plant a tree in the Netherlands or in Dubai, the it's the, the, you know, the 
carbon impact mm-hmm. is the same. So if it's the same type of tree, it's a, you know you, whether you it doesn't matter where you plant it. So there we're looking at global solutions for mm-hmm. a global challenge. But when we're talking at uh, planning for uh, livability or well-being at a local scale. You know, if a tree is thing in the Netherlands, it doesn't help me get shade in Dubai okay. and vice versa. So mm. I'm looking at a very local challenge. And so then it's about really, okay, what does this particular courtyard, what does this particular street need? Does it need shade? Does it need a play area? Does it need some form of nature that people can engage with, can touch, can smell? What are the constraints? How much water do I have, etc. And I think a lot of that is about how much people value their natural environment. On what is green, what is livable and good? Because, as you said, a lot of times that the whether it's textbooks or magazines or movies that we see are not just. I wouldn't just say Western; they're kind of American, European. Because you know, South America there has a lot more arid mm. cities than North America, and actually, if arid cities talk to each other more, whether they're east or west or north or south, they probably have a lot in common that mm. they can learn from each other. So, it really, it's just about valuing nature and and having a strategic and well-informed approach and if i give you an example to take yeah. just to i think to see the risk and the thinking around uh green as the color limiting nature to think mm-hmm. to the color green if you think of if you take that thinking to an extreme you might look at a city like mecca and say okay we need to bring down some of these mountains because we need to add mm. green space okay yeah okay so are we valuing the from whether it's from a Islamic spiritual perspective or from a scientific perspective or from a social cultural perspective? Are we valuing nature in all its forms and its indigenous forms and its context? And if we are, how are we mm. protecting it? Okay. So it really comes down to values and what are we valuing and what is our view of good and bad and beautiful and ugly. And as long, you know, just like in in the you know media industry, if beautiful is white and blonde, then that's that's all you're going to see. Is that, if that's all that's shown, portrayed as beautiful, then that's what people's mm-hmm. image of beautiful is. And if sustainable is lush and green or something, you know, whatever it's being portrayed as, the image it's, people see it as, that that is what they will ascribe yeah. the value to. So there is a PR angle to this and a value-based story to this and a depth in terms of understanding one's own context and framework, guide, you know, spiritual context also and mm-hmm. cultural background. Yeah. Oh, wow, that blows my mind. Every future city I can see or imagine is very green. And I guess that there's something that's stuck there. So I will have to broaden my mental models for what the future looks like, because that's very important in planning your future is what does that future look like to you? And you can take it, you can spin it also. Every, for some people, every future city has lots mm. of gadgets you know, yeah. or lots of glass or lots of, and it's like, why? And if we really want to be, you know, based on the science we know, based on the facts we have today, if we want to have a chance living sustainably on this earth that we have, we're going to have to readapt yeah. our existing cities. We don't have the resources to start over and build new green, you know, color green, super tech cities. That's not the answer. And we, even if it was the answer, we do don't that. have no. the resources to. Well, then perhaps we should. I guess that's something that you do to look at cities from like a health or an adaptability or a perspective of resilience, which 
maybe requires a more holistic approach. How do you take all those different stakeholders and perhaps also angles into account? And, and what does a healthy city look like rather than a smart city or a, a green city? Or how would that change your work if you were trying to build a healthy city, which encourages people to move or to live in a healthier way or to never be outside during a very peak hot times or there are many challenges that that are around in and around the built environment especially now that we have record heats record floods everywhere hmm. so yeah it goes back to what we were talking about this and that's exactly why it's important to set a clear vision and objectives framework what are we trying to do is this you know as a you know, dear client, as whether the client is a public sector agency or the developer in the private sector, whoever the client is, whoever the project owner is, what do you want out of your project? And if is your focus on health, is your focus on sustainability, on all of the above, is it on attracting people, is it on people's life when they're there? And depending on what the question is, the answer will be different. A health focus. So, so yeah, resilience is a very interesting concept and a in some ways, it's maybe more practical than sustainability because when we talk about sustainable development, it's really about this equilibrium steady state where everything is in balance. Are we ever mm. going to get there? Who knows? Resilience is about what happens, you know, and what happens with the ups and downs, what happens when there's imbalance, which is pretty much all the time. What happens when you have shocks and stresses, whether they're environmental, political, economic, health, etc., etc. So it's a in a way, it's a much more practical framework. The questions asked are things that we deal with every day. Sustainable development is more of an ideal. How do we how do you plan for a perfect world? How do we get there? Yeah. Both useful in different contexts. Healthy cities, to be honest, to, to me, isn't shouldn't be an option. Like we need to think to, to prioritize the health and well being of the people living in cities. And that it's interesting that you say how do people not go out? The challenge in our part of the world, when it are I mean the in the Gulf cities and in the broader Middle East, is getting people out. <laughs> because we, you know, are we? Uh, you know, I'm somebody who spent most of my life in the Gulf. I was born and raised in Dubai. I spent most of my childhood in an mm. air-conditioned space. Okay. You know, day, night, summer, or winter, I was indoors, and that's because it was, you know, it's just this way of planning a city where, you know, you go from a an apartment to a parking lot to a mall, or to an indoor football pitch or whatever. So it's actually how do we get people out? And there have been really interesting projects over the past ten years, like Anifa and Riyadh, where if you plan and design public space, open space, nature spaces, in a way that's usable. And I'm not talking about being outside in the middle of the day, in the middle of the summer. I'm talking about being outside early morning, early evening, late evening, hmm. most of the year, or you know, in the middle of the day in the winter. So as long as uh, you know, people think, okay, but it's 40 or 45 or 50 degrees in the summer, why are we even thinking about these cities for people to live in? Well, okay, but this is only a very actually limited hmm. time of the year it's in winter it's 20 degrees c yeah. for you know for months and the mornings and the evenings and people can dress lighter or heavier so why as cities are in minus 20 minus 30 minus 40 degrees acceptable but cities are in plus 40 mm. plus 50 not acceptable so again there's a question of you know it's, why bother planning cities in these locations but to me it's not 
I grew up in this part of the world. I think the biggest impact I can have is in this part of the world because that's what I understand. And so it's how can I make the place I'm in better? And and to me, that's a very, also the very Islamic concept. It's not about, you know, think of the best or the easiest place to live or the best place you want to live and go migrate there. You're where you are for a reason. What can you do where you are with what you have? There's also a challenge there for you as a Muslim and as someone who is a, who calls herself an environmentalist, I guess, because so far it has been quite clear to me in, in different conversations I've had that a relationship with creation is very important for you to value creation, right? If you, whether it's nature or animals or your surroundings. And we see that where in, in, in urban areas where there's not a lot of nature, people lose that the value for nature, right? It's because it becomes a concept and not something that is reality. How do you encourage people to develop that re- relationship with nature and with the creation uh, better? Because I think that's very essential for us to move forward and move away from this very materialistic worldview. While at the same time, I think cities are only growing and we're expecting cities to only grow and then people move away from non-urban areas. That's right. So I think, first of all, as we talked about, it's about broadening the concept of nature. So getting people to realize that being in nature could be taking a walk on the beach. It doesn't have to be taking a hike in the forest. You're (laughs) never going to do that in Dubai. And so it's kind of really getting people aware as to what is the nature that's around them. And then how can we plan it so that there's multiple layers of nature and and multiple places so that if you know there's a daily walk that you can take but then there's something that maybe you can go to a few times a week drive by and then there's a an experience you can go to once a month if you want to take a plane Mm. or it's layers it's about how how do we have a matrix of spaces and experiences and what's really important as well is the activation is the functionality so it's not enough to have a beach or a garden or you know a, 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 a wadi it's what do people do when they get there because again the mental well-being the impact of nature is really part of the criteria is how much to what extent do we engage with it so if i'm looking at a tree when i'm driving in my car the only sense that out of my five senses i'm only engaging my sight eyesight very limited really versus actually being able to you know touch the bark or the smell the flowers on the tree if it's if i'm walking and the tree is next to me as opposed to in the median of the street where nobody can get to it or in the middle of a roundabout where it's dangerous to get to so if you're going to plant a tree great plant it in a place or put it alone or any type of nature put it in a place where people can actually interact with it they can touch it they can smell it they can eat from its fruits there is functionality to it so it's how we program the nature spaces and it's not necessarily about size so having small pocket parks, small places where people can grow their food. How can people experience nature as a as a multiple times per day, every day, in, in whatever climate they are? And you know, I'm not saying it's not challenging. It is, and it's a different way of us thinking about both planning the city and also also how do we go about our activities. But there, I'm you know, I don't and I don't have all the solutions. <laughs> That's for sure. But what I can do is help ask the questions and dig up some yeah, of the research. It's it's silly, right, that we build nature in the middle of roundabouts where you cannot get to it. Now that, that you say it, it's, it, I guess it has a function as something you could see and it's easy maintenance. Yeah. But it is a little bit silly because it keeps nature as a far away thing rather than a close thing. That's very interesting. Yeah. So it depends whether mm-hmm. you're after a helicopter view of the city 
or a vehicle yeah. view of the city okay. or a pedestrian view of the city. So if you're planning the city so that when somebody drives a helicopter, it looks nice, you're going to get a very different answer if yeah. you're planning the city so that somebody walks yeah. in it. it Is that a target that you have to create more walkable cities or walkable neighborhoods or areas? Mm, pretty much all the cities in the region now, that's becoming an item on the agenda for, for multiple reasons. So from a health perspective, there is a huge crisis in terms of obesity and diabetes in the Gulf mm. because people don't exercise, because they don't have spaces to walk, mm. etc. It's not part of the lifestyle. That's slowly changing, but that's kind of helped get walkability on the agenda. It's also from an economic and tourism perspective. People, you know, if we're in the Gulf cities are about uh, attracting talent attracting global talent and global investment. Well, more and more people are aware of and picky about where they live and they want to be able to to walk. They want to be able to walk to the shop or to walk to a park or and so planning walkability and you know also helps attract professionals and skilled people and you may choose to live in this city rather than that city because of you know the walkability impact. You are living and working in in a part of the world that is where the, the majority of people is Muslim and follows Islam. In, in I guess, and it's very international at the same time. So it's it's also dynamic that mm. is switching. How is does that demographic well influence how sustainability is viewed, or is sustainability as part of Islam not fully understood yet? So as a child, very for me, very young, growing up, I was expecting the Middle East to be very sustainable because that's where all the Muslims are. And there was, there's been quite a shock throughout my, my, my professional time of my life where I was like, well, this is, it's not true at all. Where is the sustainability leadership? That's where this question is coming from. And I know I'm biased and that to me, the link seems very clear and you might be biased as well. (laughs) I'm very interested in your thoughts and what perhaps is needed over the coming years to encourage more Muslims to have sustainability as a normal part of their life and to create that as a more normal part of life as well. Yeah, so I am biased like you are in terms of seeing a big link between Islam and living sustainably. And more and more I can see people in professional circles and on social media drawing the connection. But it, it, for the longest time, it wasn't there. So I don't think the connection is obvious for many people. And the if there, I think that maybe the obvious connection is about environmental protection. Again, we go into EIA mode versus you know sustainable development and setting a sustainability vision and strategies, etc. Are we just protecting what's there, or are we being proactive and thinking about our day-to-day lives in that sense? So I think people, you know, don't cut down a tree or don't pollute the the river. Mm. People see a link with Islam, kind of the pollution prevention or protection of natural spaces. But in terms of, you know, switch off the tap or switch off the lights, I think only recently are people starting to see the connection between using resources efficiently in Islam, between access to nature and Islam. And I think that's a, I mean, one of the criticisms of the term sustainability is that actually it's not a very thorough framework. There isn't a lot of academic rigor behind it as a concept. And so we're one way is probably Islam as a framework and the teachings of Islam, whether it's the Quran, the Sunnah, the, the legal body, the tradition of Islam, the very broad and diverse tradition of Islam, for me, is a source to really define sustainability and not vice versa. 
So what are, as you started the podcast, what are our responsibilities as human beings on this planet, as vice-trans, as actors? What are our responsibilities towards towards each other, towards nature, towards our creator? And from there, really, we can build a holistic view in terms of environmental and social sustainability. Yeah. Oh, I like that. And I agree. I think we should have our own narrative and use our own words and not have to use the word sustainability to, to say what we mean, but have. And I, I guess Islam is too broad, but, you know, to, to have our own language in there. But what do you think we should, what is at the top of the agenda for the next, if you had to make a, an, an agenda to, you know, shape public perception and educate people, where would you start in doing that? Equality and justice. And why those? Partly, be, well, partly because we live in a very, yeah, partly because we live in a very unequal world that's getting more and more, or less and less equal or more unequal. So if you look at uh, the reports that look at progress against global indicators for the past two decades, you'll see okay, we are we're doing we have improved on you know we have less poverty, we have less malnutrition, we have less child death rates, etc. But we have more inequality. So the The, because the development model and the aid model we're using, it, it, it might help, you know, it might help reduce poverty, reduce malnutrition, but it increases inequality. It's this, this economic model of capitalism, etc., etc. So, I think we we start with, with the key challenge of our current model, which is inequality. So, one is because it's a global challenge. Two, because I think. In Islam, justice is such an important pillar, justice and balance. And three, personally, for me, justice is a big thing. It's a, a big personal value. And so it may seem that it's very far away from the concept of sustainability. But actually, if we, and this is one of the interesting things between, conceptually, between sustainability and resilience. Because sustainability, generally, the targets, the KPIs we're talking about are averages whether it's a city average or a national average or a global average. Whereas resilience, we're looking at the weakest link. What, how, what is the experience of the most vulnerable people? And until we take care of them, until we take care of the weak, we are not resilient. I don't care about the average. And so it's really, we have to look out for each other and we have to look out for the people who are unable to look out for themselves, not because... They are weak, but because the system hasn't given them the ability to look after themselves. And so it's a, again, it's a complete shift in mindset. It's something that is, um, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about because it's not often the question that I have to answer at work, whether it's my nine to five job or my after five job. But I think that's, uh, to me, that's where we need to start. We need to start hmm. trying to make our world okay. more equal. Wow. Well, well. I don't know where to go with that. I, I would agree. And I guess justice is a more, I've been thinking about this recently because all the frameworks that have been very important for the last 10 years or the last seven years, the SDGs, ESG, it has all been taken down over the last two or three years. There are many holes in there and it's, we are not talking about doing what is right. We are talking about doing just enough not to be called evil. And that's where I do really, I've, I do really like the stop talking about average, but about averages, but start talking about, you know, you think about yourself and your city and your country or region as a system and look at the weakest link and build from there. Yeah. I guess we should start asking people to, to, 
you know, start to work on this narrative and have that from a really an authentic Islamic language and develop our own competencies in building more resilience. Yeah. And I think the beauty of that framework is that it starts with, it can start with personal action. So if each one of us looked around us and did something to help somebody else who's in a less fortunate position, then I think the ball will start rolling. As long as we are thinking about how, you know, how do I purchase a pair of jeans that uses less, that's warm water, that's been manufactured in a more water efficient way, you know, that's we're in, that's the wrong question to ask. It's not about which pair of jeans to buy, you know. If anything, it's about do I even have to? Do I even you know need the pair of jeans? But actually, I don't think it's even about that. As as long, we're stick, still stuck in that consumerism mindset, hmm. we're very yeah. far away from where we. Need. It's a criticism of myself as much as yeah. Too we try to at least it's something that I do as well. You try to um, you know look at your own actions and tell yourself you're doing really well from behind your laptop because you bought the most sustainable water bottle and we've forgotten the community <laughs> approach yeah. to this and i guess islam is really a community religion mm. or any communal religion okay yes absolutely and then your work becomes even more important because all those communities are within cities right and it, it doesn't depend on if you are muslim or not muslim it's that's in in, in the area you are building that becomes very important because it is so international. But you would want some of your of those important values to translate into what you are building and how you're creating and the, the type of community you are building. What would you want to do different in, in, in your way? What would you really want to change or do in a different way based on how you are currently doing it? Taking this into account, right? If you really were to be a professional from this stance and this point mm. of view take so at the moment there is very little community engagement that happens when it comes to planning or developing or building projects in the part of our world the world i live in it's generally not a legal requirement and it, it, it doesn't happen full stop now i think what i would like to do is change that and but change it in a way where it's not, we don't just invite the privileged community we invite everybody you know, whether it's the you know the day worker or the the child or the foreign worker or the local or the national invite people to the table understand what they need and develop accordingly yeah and have so the, the develop a more inclusive approach of how you build cities and then perhaps also those it's i guess it's Correct. not an, a nice way to speak in the weakest link but the, the the need the most vulnerable people then also come into view the right most vulnerable and start people. building based on their needs and not based on how close to your home do you want your fancy new gym to be or the supermarket because you're very busy and you don't yeah that would that is there a world where that is the first yeah, question we ask ourselves before we start a process because that could be a very simple change right before anything we before we do anything new or a new development, we first ask ourselves, what do the most vulnerable people need? Is that how we could make the biggest change? Because it it's, mm. it's an easy question, but it's a big question. It's, yes. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. I haven't thought about that. The difficulty with that is what's the motivation to ask it? So, so the... One of the most challenging things in what I do is figuring out how do I sell my vision to people? 
So think of what you know. What is the win-win situation? What do they want that that I can? You know how what terminology do I use? What what can we come up with shared objectives where what the client wants will actually lead to a what I see as a better outcome? And so whether it could be a PR angle, it could be an attracting people angle, it could be a, a you know a resource efficiency angle. You know, when it, and sustainability, there are all these angles in, you know in, in some way or another. For what you're talking about, vulnerability and, and getting everybody, inclusivity, getting everybody to the table, what would be the motivation? Who would do, what's the reason anybody would do that, whether public sector or private sector? Really, the only reason is, is you know, value-based or people actually, this is what they want to do. This is what they think is right to do, or there's a legal requirement to do it. The difficulty with having, even if it does become a legal requirement, which, for example, community consultation at the moment is a legal requirement in many parts of the world, but because it's only a legal requirement and people don't see the benefit it adds to them, it becomes a tick box exercise and it's not done in a meaningful way. And so the outcomes don't manifest. So it, it needs to, there kind of needs to be a, a genuine need and benefit that people see in order to do this, to have yeah. half a chance at doing this properly. Okay. And that, that it is more difficult to put values first when you're not on the same level of values as well in a more diverse and international field. Yeah. That's something we should think about a little bit more. How do we start from, I guess, first, first principle approach based on values as and maybe, and I do under, I appreciate the political field that you're in. It's politics, building a city or building a neighborhood, it's politics, but how do we bring values back into politics and make, you know, meeting, meeting the needs, our first priority. So there are, if you look at, so the green building movement that started with rating systems like LEED and others, they're very, when they're at the buildings, they started off at the building scale and they're very resource focused and they have very limited of any social dimension. But if you look at the more recent professional certifications or guidelines or rating systems, things like the biophilic city framework where it's or the resilient cities framework, they do bring in the social aspect and they do bring in the kind of the idea that the inclusivity and that does it work for all people and who are you serving? So we there is been there has been a development as our um understanding and definition of sustainability or of good cities or good planning has developed and broadened, those ideas have started to come in. And that's typically how change happens. You have you make there's a some sort of a voluntary system that's trying to make a change, break the mold. And there are some early adopters that do it for the right reasons and prove a point and then the market follows. So I think we're slowly yeah. getting there, but it will, okay. it will take time. Well, I, I hope that the development in for, for people in the Middle East and I guess worldwide or Muslims worldwide to understand that perhaps it's not sustainability, but it's about justice to understand how important it is to have that as part of your faith then in that way we can really influence most of these different movements and have justice as a starting point and not as a something we add later on. Like you mentioned in the beginning, it really changes the process depending on how you take it into account. Okay. I guess I guess we should leave it there. This was really interesting. Any last thoughts? What's going through your mind right now? What are What is your take-home message perhaps? Okay. Yes, I didn't expect we'd end up where we did. But yes, you're right. I, there's a lot to think about in terms of questions of justice and balance and vulnerability and inclusivity. 
and a more holistic way of you know, what does yeah. good design mean? What does good well, planning that, that's, mean? That's, regardless of your profession, I think that's something that we should, that we can all develop in further. I would like to really thank you for your time. I had a lot of fun. It was a pleasure and an honor. And uh, I hope to speak to you soon again, inshallah. Right. Assalamu alaikum. Likewise. Thank you very much. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Stewards Podcast. I hope it has been both beneficial and encouraging. Please take the time to reflect on how you can live in a more sustainable way. God willing, together, we can build a better future for ourselves, the Ummah, both now and in the future, and be rewarded in the hereafter. And God knows best. If you want to share any reflections, please send an email to newstewardspod at gmail.com. That's all one word. والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته